Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, the debate over North Carolina's body cam law. We'll take a deep dive into President Biden's economic plan and the latest news from the General Assembly. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Join the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation. Robert Reeves, the Democratic leader in the House. Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11. And Nelson Dower, senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Robert, let's begin with the big story of the week, and that's the body cam law and the debate over that. And that's correct, Mark. What's been going on is a debate about whether or not we need to update the law. Of course, the events in Elizabeth City are what got us there. What we need to understand is what the law actually presently does, and there's been some confusion about that. Right now, the law says that a head of a police department agency can release the video to persons in the video or the representatives, if they either by image or by um, audio. In this particular case, the family was shown a redacted version of the video, and that's really what starts the controversy. The second kind of misunderstanding is whether or not you have to have a court order to get this done. Well, obviously, police can release it on their own to these particular people. The court order comes in if there is an appeal of the chief or the sheriff's decision. That's when it goes before court. There's a separate proceeding that you have to have if you want to have it released to the general public through news media sources or things of that sort. So you've had Democrats that have decided that they would like to see an update, and one of the things they'd like to do have to do with what the crux of the big issue was at the time we debated 2016. 2016, okay. should it be personnel or should it be public? We're now saying it should be considered a public record only to be held in the case that a judge says it should be. Nelson, so you have the floor. Well, I think one of the keys is to understand, you know, these are not cell phone videos. These are actually official police reports and they're part of an investigation. And so this is potential evidence. And there is a concern when edited portions of that evidence uh, are released in public because you have uh, potential criminal actions that uh, or prosecutions that could come from the incidents in question and you don't want to have an impact uh, on the on the jury pool and at the end of the day I do think that the courts need to be moderating this and making the final decisions on the advisability of release of this information. Jonah, is selective editing a problem for a potential jury pool? They see it, they don't see the whole story? Well, and one of the big problems of this has to do with, you know, you're talking about an emotional situation and then trying to balance that with rational thought. When we talk about the shooting, the tragic shooting of Andrew Brown Jr., you have a grieving family. You have a hurt and emotionally unstable community. And naturally, they want to be able to see something to provide them the context and perspective of what happened. But you also need time, and we're in a society that doesn't do well with patience. That's a really good point. And by the way, the Brown family is supposed to seize the video this weekend, correct? They are supposed to see it, and you know, hopefully for them, it's going to be more than the redacted 10 seconds, which they saw afterwards. 
And look, when this law was passed, maybe it was passed in a good time because at the time there wasn't as much of a controversy. Now again, it comes out when we're in the midst of a tragic shooting. Again, a lot of raw emotion, a lot of salt on wounds, whether it's racial strife, whether it's police trying to defend you know, their way of doing things. Um, and the court system, the justice system takes time. So absolutely, by the time this gets before a jury, yes, the public wants to see this and understand but if we want true transparency and we want true justice, there's a lot to balance here. Mitch, put this in context, please. I like the fact that Jonah mentioned the balancing act because I was thinking of the balancing act between the public's right to know what its officers are doing and the need to have a criminal law process and judicial process that follows a certain set of guidelines. And with body cams, this is something that's relatively new. We weren't talking about this type of thing 20 years ago. All of this is still evolving and it's evolving during a time of, of strife and a lot of problems. Robert, close this out in about 20 seconds, my friend. And I think everything you've heard is why it's such a difficult decision because what we've got to do, and again, I think there's a difference between letting the family see the video and letting the public see the video. And I think the families need to see, and what that does is it gives everybody a sense of relief that two sides have seen a video and there's been a determination. But right now, what we have, one side seeing it and that's it. Okay, you know, Mitch, I want to talk about Biden's economic plan, which he's calling transformational. Yeah, certainly it would be transformational if it gets all the way through. First of all, you have to back up a little bit and remember that we've already had a $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan passed during the Biden administration. Now he has coupled that with a couple of other plans, one called the American Jobs Plan, more than $2 trillion, and the American Families Plan, $1.8 trillion. You put all of that together, we'd be talking about $6 trillion of new government spending. And to put that in perspective, over the course of 2020, the federal government spent $6.5 trillion total, $3 trillion of which was deficit spending, money we don't have. This is a lot of spending. For the American Jobs Plan, it's been billed as the infrastructure bill. So you're talking about roads and bridges, but also broadband and other things that haven't been thought of as infrastructure in the past. The American Families Plan, things like universal pre-K, child care subsidies, free community college. All of this is going to require new spending which means new taxes, higher corporate tax rate up from 21% to 28%, the return of the almost 40% top individual income tax bracket. There's a lot of concern that this government spending could cause inflation to rise. Even Secretary Treasurer, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, is saying interest rates might have to go up. All of this means a lot of uncertainty for our economy moving forward. Robert, let me ask you a question. They're projecting that the economy may grow by 9%. Do we need all this spending? Well, I think as far as the spending goes, what you got to think of is this. Tax money is an investment. And what happens is our people give us money to be the steward and to figure out when best to invest it. And what you're hoping on and what you're betting on is if you do this spending, that what you'll get in return is what balances it out. So, for instance, if it's just sheer spending that gets no kind of return, that's one thing. But spending that you put in the infrastructure for things like broadband, you expect to get two or three times that return in economic development. So I think that's really where it is because, as you said, there is an expectation that the economy is going to grow, but there's also an expectation that if we don't address the needs that we've got right now coming out of this pandemic, that it's going to stifle again and we could be looking at another recession. Joni, you think there's a lot of pork in this bill? And, and, and candidly, does Biden have a mandate to do this? Pretty close numbers in the House and the Senate. Pretty close numbers in the House and Senate. Does he have a mandate to do this? 
he could interpret it however he wants. He won the popular vote by more than 7 million people. He got 51% of the vote, though. All of this comes down to what is the fundamental role of government? And let's put in the North Carolina context. Apple just announced that they're going to invest a billion dollars to build a new campus here. Now, there's private investment in the area, 3,000 jobs. Do we need government to do the same thing? Well, Apple is not going to expand I-40 or Glenwood Avenue and all those different roads, not going to expand the airport. Right. Apple's not going to provide internet to people in Chatham County or in, in uh, Granville County and help those people prepare okay. for more tech jobs. So it has to be some sort of public-private partnership. The question is for voters, <laughs> who, what's the balance of that public-private? More public, more private, what's the role of government? Nelson, critics say this is a mass distribution of wealth, is it? Well, it is. Uh, the programs, many of them are entitlement programs. So we're not just talking about bricks and mortar, broadband, transportation, those kind of programs. We're talking about programs that are going to ever increase in cost and uh, make the size of government far larger than it is today. And when you combine that with low interest rates, easy money, you're going to have too much monetary expansion. At the same time, you have too much physical stimulus. So instead of demand being driven by the economy increasing wages and prices, what you're having is dollar-driven wages and price growth, and that will ignite inflation down the road. And with all of the tax increases, what you're doing is you're going to be cutting available capital in the private sector when you raise all these uh, corporate taxes and uh, capital gains uh, at the eve of the time when we're having uh, a large retirement of the capital class, the the, uh, the baby boomers. It's it's bad policy. Okay, we got to move on. I'm coming right back to you. Let's talk about the General Assembly's week. Fill us in. This week in General Assembly was fast and furious. This is uh, the week before legislative crossover, so you have a deadline for your policy bill, and if it was not moving in committee or on the floor this week, uh, you were in, in trouble. I mean, next week's even going to be worse. I feel sorry for uh, <laughs> my former colleague over there, uh, Representative Reeves, uh, who's leading, uh, ably leading the Democrats. But uh, some of the themes that you're seeing, the word transparency is in almost every other bill. There's a lot of work in those areas. Uh, Health care awareness and access. So, for example, House Bill 149, increasing access to telehealth. That's a bill that's a major bill. There are a number of criminal justice reform bills. The Senate has uh, SB 300, which is a major package uh, in their body. The House has around half a dozen or so bills that have came out of the House Select Committee on Community Relations, Law Enforcement, and Justice. That, of course, those bills are a major theme in both chambers. And we're also addressing some issues like the long-term uh, COVID-19 policy. So everything from uh, being able to visit patients in hospitals to uh, opening college campuses uh, for football games. What's fall. the status of the budget? Well, the budget is, of course, uh, with the Senate. They are working away on it. Uh, we anticipate they will release uh, their version of the budget sometime in the next couple of weeks, and the House will go to work. Mr. Leader, you have the floor. Well, what I would say is, just like you've heard from Nelson, criminal justice did dominate a lot. SB 300, I think, should be 
have a good spotlight on it because, again, it was an amazing work of bipartisanship. You had a bill that started off one way, and then uh, Senator Danny Britt, to his credit, went to all the stakeholders. He went to Democrats and he says, how can I make this a better bill so that we can get this out of this chamber and people feel good about it? And he took those examples. And so the other thing that you've seen in the House are the bills that came from the Speaker's Task Force. You've seen bills also filed from the Governor's Task Force. And I think a lot of people have that on their minds. Mitch, we're seeing more cooperation, right? We certainly are in some respects. I don't know how long that's going to hold up. Um, one would hope You're that, a pessimist. Uh, I, I often <laughs> am a pessimist. One would hope that the General Assembly and the governor can all come together on some major ideas and say, let's, let's just focus on those. But also, when the, when the rubber hits the road and you get to the budget and you, you get to the point where you're deciding how much are we going to spend on this versus how much does the governor want us to spend, I can see some area of disagreement there. The one thing that interests me during this week and the next is this is the time for the people who are not among the leadership to get their bills out. The leaders of the Senate and House could pass their bills whenever they want. The folks who are not among the leadership, this is the time when they have to scramble to get their bills done. Jonah. It's interesting sitting between my two friends here because the challenge, you know, for me and my colleagues, my colleagues and I, uh, how do we communicate you know, the impact of this and the greater, you know, effect on everyday North Carolinians' lives. Because a lot of it is, you know, inside baseball, it's pretty wonky. But there are some also things that are in there, like whether it has to do with, you know, permits to purchase pistols or, you know, whether it's the body cam law or some new crackdowns on demonstrations and anti-discrimination or education bills. And I will say no news is good news. Give credit to North Carolina that you're not hearing some of the more divisive things coming out of Florida or Iowa or Arizona. But, you know, you, you see here both sides committed. I, I just think back to that Apple announcement from a couple weeks ago. The governor says, I tried to get rid of them. They tried to get rid of me. North Carolina said no. So here we are working together. That's what they put us here for. Nelson, close us out in about 40 seconds. Well, what you'll see next week, as, as Jonah was alluding to, is a full range of legislation in areas like transportation, education, additional COVID relief funding uh, that will be brought forward that, that's coming through the, the federal government. And so if you're interested in all in your industry, you should pay attention to the General Assembly. Well, this will continue to be a topic for, through August, right? And then we got to come back for redistricting. All right, I want to talk about America's longest war. Jonah, I appreciate you bringing this to my attention. It looks like it's coming to an end. September 11th, 20 years since that atrocity. And the tragic irony of this is that many of the soldiers that are currently overseas that have enlisted, some of them were born after 9-11. Think of the 18 or 19-year-old soldiers, some of them from Fort Bragg or from Camp Lejeune, sent overseas as part of whatever the long-term you know, effect of Operation Enduring Freedom or Iraqi Freedom, born after 9-11, or they were toddlers during that fateful day. So President Biden set out a goal, withdraw all troops from Afghanistan, America's longest war between Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, $1.57 trillion. That's the combined pay according to the Department of Defense. Uh, that's the cost to America, but in lives, more than 2,000. Now, that's nothing compared to the 58,000 that we lost in the war in Vietnam. But think of not just the families that have lost, but the people that have lost limbs, that have lost livelihoods. The, the, the ripple effect on all of this. We're also talking about a huge difference in how war is fought. 
boots on the ground versus drones versus pressing of a button versus our involvement overseas and what's that going to take? We got bin Laden more than 10 years ago. What are we still doing there? There's a tremendous debate because at the same time, so five or 600 troops were just pulled right. out. There's still 7,000 NATO troops that are still in Afghanistan. The Pentagon this week sending B-52 bombers more to the Middle East, more to the Gulf region because Iran, of course, continues its nefarious activity. So, yes, we're pulling out of Afghanistan. That's uh, significant. Okay. But, you know, it's not, a, it's not a full retreat from the Middle East because it's not like the Taliban is going anywhere. Mitch, was it worth it? That's the big question, and my fear is that if there is another major emergency in the not-too-distant future, people are going to be gun-shy, pardon the pun, about uh, participating because they'll look back at what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq and say, you know, it really wasn't worth it. We were there 20 years, and how much different are conditions now than they were other than getting rid of Osama bin Laden? Robert, in general, should we be in a nation? Should America uh, be in, in, in the uh, business of nation-building, you think? Well, I think it's just a hard discussion because obviously that's been a role that we've taken or do on we have, and off. We, we have higher priorities at home here. Yes, I absolutely agree that we've got high priorities here. The question is whether or not what's going on across the sea is affecting us to such a point that we can't concentrate on our priorities here. And that's a question we don't know, and I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. Nelson, do we need a residual force there? Liz Cheney, Lindsey Graham say we do. I don't think so. You know, Afghanistan is known as the graveyard of empires. The British and the Soviets both invaded three times each into Afghanistan. We accomplished everything we needed to accomplish really in the first year of the conflict. Um, so uh, why are we still there when it doesn't address our strategic needs? I mean, when you look at countries like Germany, Korea, Japan, where we have had a 70-year continuing uh, presence uh, there, we're not bleeding. and those forces are serving our strategic interests. So I think what the United States needs to do is it has to focus on its strategic interests, which frankly are not in Afghanistan, and we can, as has been said, we can use drones, we can use our technology wherever Al-Qaeda or any of these other terror groups attempt to set up camps anywhere in the globe. We can strike them. Okay, I want to move on and go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. As economies are recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, the states with the lowest number of regulatory burdens for entrepreneurs are likely to have some of the best success. So the Libertarian Cato Institute just came out with its Entrepreneur Regulatory Barriers Index ranking the states. North Carolina ranks number 12. Number one, Georgia. They need some good news, so it's good for them to be at number one. The two Dakotas, Colorado and New Hampshire, round out the top five. Just ahead of us at number 11 is Virginia. So maybe there are some places where we can learn from Georgia and Virginia. Of our other neighbors, South Carolina is number 28, Tennessee number 31. So North Carolina, not too bad a shape. Robert, you're most underreported. Surprisingly enough, what our expectation was coming out of COVID is maybe a baby boom, and it seems like it's been a baby bust. The Wall Street Journal tells us that births in the U.S. have dropped to levels not seen since 1979, and we have to see what that long-term effect is going to be. What, is, what do you think the long-term effect will be? Well, I think or that impact on the workforce. 
Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest impact is uh, we get places like Apple and at some point in time they're going to need people to work there and you're going to hope that we've got enough people here to make sure that we've got a good workforce. We had a baby in November, so my family's doing my job. <laughs> <You're doing your laughs> I just, just want to say, we had our own Corona baby. Yeah, yeah our, co our COVID. For the economy. Yeah, for the economy. That's exactly right. Um, Underreported story. Uh, you know, it's a, sorry to be a buzzkill here, but um, we, we talk about the tragedy in Elizabeth City, right? And Andrew Brown Jr., uh, you know, potentially unarmed black man who I don't care what you allegedly did or didn't do. You don't deserve capital punishment, you know, a, a judge and jury on the spot. Um, but on the other side of the state, we had two police officers uh, tragically killed. And let's say their names, too. OK, Chris Ward and Logan Fox. And, um, you know, these are two individuals that also had families. And what were they doing? They got a call. Hey, go check on this house because, you know, the guy didn't show up for work. They went to go knock on the door and they were both shot. And then another officer was also shot, but it was his Kevlar helmet that saved his life. So, you know, yes, egregious, act, you know, behavior by some police officers. But the majority Would you say of police they're a minority? officers... The police officers with egregious behavior? I, I, God hopes so. Yeah, of course. I mean, look, I can't speak. I will never understand what it's like to be an African-American or a person of color, right? I can hide my Jewishness. You know, my, my friend here can't hide who he is in that way. But, you know, the police officers that I've seen, and I'd like to think the predominant, okay. you know, the, you know, amount of, of, of law enforcement here are honorable and noble men. And these were two officers that and were doing women. their jobs. And, and women, and these were two officers that were doing their jobs, and we don't have to negate one by ignoring the other. We can say That's both. a great point, and by the way, 120 or so, at last count, officers have been killed in the line of duty in this country. Underreported, please. Yes, uh, what do Russia, China, and Iran have in common? Well, they're all civilization states with ancient histories. They're export-driven economies. They have declining birth rates, far more so than the United States. None of them have any really major um, power allies. All three are, of course, in conflict with the United States, as well as a host of their own neighbors. And none of the three, even though they have some commercial military ties uh, between themselves, none of them have any formal treaties or formal ties between them. So uh, they're actually not so much an axis of evil, but of, of axis of countries that are in trouble in troubling parts of the world. The best strategy for the United States really is to bolster our ties with key regional players in all of those areas, Poland, Turkey, and especially the Philippines. Is the Biden administration doing that? Well, I hope they will move forward. I, I just speak in, you know, they, as we mentioned last week, uh, the Biden administration did say they're supporting the Three Seas Initiative. That is very beneficial to Poland. We have a lot of work to repair relations with Turkey that we can do. And we have some openings right now with how okay. China's treating the Philippines. I hope the Biden administration will exploit that. Okay, let's go to lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? My who's up? Supporters of a convention of states that would propose constitutional amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, that bill barely made it through the state house, 60 57 vote. The bad news for them, 10 Republicans in the House voted against it, and more bad news. The Senate doesn't seem to be that interested. My who's down? Hertford County. Hertford County lost 2.3% of its population in the latest census count. That was the largest drop by percentage of the 31 North Carolina counties that lost population. On the other end of the spectrum, Wake overtakes Mecklenburg as the largest county. Robert, who's up and who's down this week, please, sir? 
Jeff Bezos literally is up with uh, Blue Origin. His rocket company is going to offer his first suborbital sightseeing trip on his new Shepard spacecraft. It's a big leap for private commercial space travel. Okay, down. My down is vaccinations and not in a good way. So many North Carolinians are getting the vaccine right now that there are a number of people who uh, left the plan is getting dwind is beginning to dwindle. And so we've got to figure out a way to get those people vaccinated. Jonah, who's up and who's down this week, my friend? I'll tell you who's up front row with Mark Rotterman. Look at us here at this table. Okay, follow the science. Why get a car if you're not going to drive? This we is got a our Lindsay Beerman set. Okay? Lindsay Beerman, our GM, built this and designed it. I'm just saying, okay? Evidence, the vaccine works. Um, what's down is basically the supply of everything. Uh, diapers, gasoline, because truck drivers are down, uh, restaurant workers, lumber, uh, who knows what's next. I'm hearing ketchup because this is serious. Restaurants reopening are now basically hoarding all of the condiments because they're like, well, we have all these new people here. You don't need the fries. Who's up, yeah. who's down this week? <laughs> Who's up? Elon Musk, uh, rising Tesla sales, obviously su successful SpaceX, SpaceX missions and a new NASA contract and Starlink, which is probably the future of telecommunications uh, around the world. And also uh, Elon is leaving California for the great state of Texas. So that makes him an up. Who's down is all broadcast and cable news network ratings, for example, CNN. Oh. Well, wait a minute. For example, CNN was down year over year 47%, but I'm happy for Jonah here that, that local broadcast news is actually up. Okay, headline next week, Mitch. <laughs> Long nights, bleary eyes, and hundreds of votes before the crossover deadline. Mr. Leader, headline next week. And that late night legislating leads to next day legislative hangovers. Headline next week. Liz Cheney ousted from the Republican leadership. When do you think that transpires? Could start as early as Wednesday. Uh, why do you think that's happening right now? Is that because she's gone after Trump? Yeah. Pretty I much. I think he, look, I think Trump. His Still dominates the party. Well, look, he has a dominant personality. That was always going to be what was, it wasn't his politics. It was who he is as a person and his ability to connect with people. If people go against that, then yes, then her ability to connect with people is not going to be so successful. And I don't think Pelosi's standing up for her help either. Headline next week. And the General Assembly in overdrive. Overdrive? Overdrive. What can we expect? You can expect hundreds and hundreds of bills. Most of them uh, my colleague over here will vote for, but he will be very passionate on probably a handful of them in opposition. Okay. Can we miss anything quickly, Mitch? No, I mean, this is a big week for the General Assembly. Lots of ideas floating around. This is when you get to see the sausage made, whether you like it or not. <laughs> That's it for us. Great job, panel. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Funding for the Lightning Round provided by NC Realtors State Employees Association of North Carolina Mary Louise and John Burris Reifenberg Construction Stefan Gleason and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.